0: Well, thank you, Ron, for reading the word for us this morning. It's always a privilege to be able to bring the word to the church and to share with the church God's word. Um, I am quite excited for this morning. It's my prayer that all of you and those watching online uh, would be encouraged and the Spirit would use this morning to work in our hearts and uh, to help us to hear this message I do want to thank my family uh, for supporting me here. They're here to to uh, listen, and I, I thank you guys for for uh, supporting me and showing up. So, last year I had the privilege of being a part of a small group um, where we studied the "I am" the "I am" statements of Christ that are found in the Gospel of John. I found that that study to be immensely encouraging. Because in so many ways, these statements get to the very core of who Jesus is. These I Am statements are unique to the Gospel of John, uh, and there are seven of these so-called I Am statements. Jesus used these statements to describe himself in a myriad of ways. And like a seven-sided diamond, these seven statements are unique, and they're different from each other, but they all nevertheless illuminate a different facet of the truth and beauty of the person of Jesus. It's in these statements, Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life, directly calling back to God's provision of manna or bread in the desert to the Israelites. He said things like, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep. And I am the good shepherd. Famously here, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But these statements really got Jesus into a lot of trouble. Remember, Jesus was in reality quite young during his ministry on earth. He was just in his early 30s. And can you imagine this young man barely out of his 20s, starts marching all over Israel, saying all kinds of wild things and making all kinds of outrageous claims. And people were following him, and there were reports of him performing miracles, healing the feeble and sick, healing the blind, feeding thousands and thousands of people with just a couple loaves of bread and a fish. And so the leaders of the religious establishment in Israel, these men who had incredible social and civic power as well, they confronted Jesus over their concerns of the things that he was saying and the things that he was doing. And so I can imagine these stately older men, probably in their 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s, they strut up to Jesus and they start to question him. And this is where Jesus got into trouble. Because he wasn't intimidated. For instance, if you recall in John 8, Jesus says straight up to these religious leaders, who, by the way, took great pride in their lineage as the descendants of Abraham, if you, Jesus said, if you abide in my word. He doesn't say scripture. He doesn't say the words of the prophets. He doesn't say Torah. But he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free well these leaders they think about this and they say look jesus we're the descendants of abraham and we've never been a slave to anyone at least in recent history so how can we be set free jesus then turns to them and basically says yeah well Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And a slave doesn't get to stay in the house. And that's, he's referring to heaven there. You men are sinners, and therefore you are a slave to sin. And then he says, only the son gets to stay in the house. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free. And I am that son. Jesus is talking about forgiving sins here and setting people free from the bondage of sin. And he says, I'm the one who does that, which was something that, to the minds of these religious leaders, only God could do. So the religious leaders try to respond to Jesus by reasserting their connection to Abraham as their father, and Jesus just tells them, I'm paraphrasing a little here, he says, nope, your father is the devil, and you only ever seek to do your father's will. He's not talking about God. Can you imagine the response in their minds to Jesus accusing them of this? And then later in that same chapter, they try to accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon of all things. And Jesus makes the claim there, and this is why they do this. Jesus makes the claim that anyone who believes in him will live forever. And the Jewish leaders, they go ballistic Accusing Jesus of claiming to be better than Abraham. Jesus, though, he just ramps it up even more. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they literally tried to murder Jesus on the spot. Right there. They began to pick up stones in order to stone him. Which was a form of Brutal execution where they would literally throw rocks at a person until they died. And I don't know if they just had bad throwing arms, but Jesus ducks out of there real fast. And uh, he lives to see another day. But these I am statements, they were so radical. They call back directly to Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself to Moses. God is charging Moses there to lead the Israelites out of slavery. In, in Egypt, and Moses asks God, what name should I use for you? And God says to Moses, my name is, I am who I am. It's where we get the name Yahweh. And So for Jesus to say before Abraham was, I am, was mind-blowingly radical. Absolutely intentional in its callback to Exodus, Jesus was doing nothing less than claiming full equality with God. And to the Jewish religious leaders, it was absolutely blasphemous. To the point that they wanted to kill him. And eventually, as we know, they would in part succeed in that. So today, we're going to be looking at the last or final I am statement of Christ in the Gospel of John, which Ron just read for us. This particular I am statement occurs as part of what is referred to as the upper room discourse. This is where Jesus is having his last meal with his disciples before he is captured and crucified. If you recall, or if you've read this passage before, this is where Jesus, he washes the feet of his disciples, which was a fairly significant breach in social protocol back then. Uh, here is where he predicts the betrayal of one of his own followers, Judas Iscariot. And we get to see the last and final teachings and prayers of Jesus with his disciples before he went to his execution. And that's why I find this particular statement so special. This last I am statement was reserved for last because I like to think it was dear to Jesus' heart. And it was significant for Jesus to make sure that his disciples got this. So today we're going to... Hear the words of Jesus in this upper room discourse, I am statement. And it's my prayer this morning that as we look at this, we would not just have the ears to hear, but also the hearts to receive it. So if you're not there already, turn to John chapter 15, and we'll get into this. But first, uh, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, this morning we ask that you would humble our even as we are eager to hear from your word, we do pray that you would give us the ears to hear, give us the eyes to see the truth from your word, and that your spirit would be helping us and convicting us of our need to listen and apply Jesus' teaching here. We pray that we would be encouraged. We pray that in this you would be getting all the glory, and we do all of this for Jesus. Christ and his glory as well. Amen. Well, as is so often the case, when we study the Bible, uh, there's often more than meets the eye. Uh, we have to dig in a little to mine the riches of Scripture. And for me, personally, this was not, of course, the first time that I had read this passage. Um, I have read it, in fact, many times. I've even heard other sermons on this Passage, but one thing I never really picked up on was just how radical this statement is. And so this brings us to our first point in the sermon that is, Jesus's radical claim, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. So, what makes this statement so radical? Well, let's just take a moment to see here what kind of claim that Jesus is actually making. All here in verse 1. Jesus says that he is the true vine. Well, if, that's, if he's the true vine, then logically there must be, by contrast, something that he's referring to as the false vine. And then he follows the statement up with another assertion. He says, my father is the vine dresser. Okay. We're all tracking, we're seeing the metaphor that he's putting down here. Jesus is the vine, the father is the vine dresser, and he goes on to talk about some branches. To us, without any other context, there's a danger that we might just kind of gloss over this without realizing how significant this is. But to Jesus' disciples, he was making a radical statement of who he was. So what am I, what am I talking about here? Well, this vine imagery... It's not something that Jesus was making up on the spot. This wasn't a brand new comparison or metaphor. And in fact, the Old Testament has many, many references to this vine. And just about in every case, the vine imagery that we see in the Old Testament is referring directly to Israel itself. So I want to take just a little bit of time this morning to look at a few of these passages. So the first one we see is from the book of Psalms. You turn to Psalm chapter, or Psalm 80. Psalm 80, starting in verse 8. And this is, I encourage you some other time to read through this entire Psalm because there's a lot more going on here than what we're going to read this morning. But this says, Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground. For it. it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feeds on it. Well, here we see that the vine in this psalm is clearly referring to Israel, which God rescued out of slavery in Egypt. It talks about how Israel was given the land, and like a vine, it spread and it was fruitful. But clearly, something went wrong, right? Because its walls of protection came down. Its fruit is pillaged by, and ravaged by wild animals, and, and then there's more, like I said, going on in Psalm 80, but we'll leave that there for now. So let's take a look at another one. Turn over to the right, Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So we see again in verse 7 that the vineyard is the house of the nation of Israel. God calls it his beloved, he planted it and he cared for it he looked for his vineyard to produce grapes. But it didn't produce grapes. It produced wild grapes. And what are these wild grapes? Again, in verse 7, those, these wild grapes are nothing less than injustice, and bloodshed, and violence. And the people crying out because instead of righteousness and loyalty to God, there is unrighteousness and disloyalty to God. And there are several others, other passages as well that we could look at, but for the sake of time, we'll just look at one more. And this is most likely the very passage, uh, based on the vocabulary that's being used, that Jesus was calling back to when he made this, this claim of being the true vine. Jesus knew the Old Testament very well, and so did the disciples and the people around him. And so they would have instantly recognized this. So flip over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. This is important because if we don't get this, there is a real danger in misinterpreting or overinterpreting John chapter 15. But when you read or think about John 15, think about Ezekiel 15 because that's most likely what Jesus was thinking about as well. So this is verse 1, starting in Ezekiel 15. He says, And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less? When the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. And though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know, that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. Just as in the previous passages we looked at, just as the dried out dead branches of a vine are useful only for fueling fire, so God was giving up the people of Jerusalem. And why was God doing this? These were his people. Well, it's clear from verse 8 that they, the people, had acted faithlessly to God. They had no allegiance to God. They had no regard to remain faithful to him. Their values were not the values of God. And they claimed they had a righteousness pur- purely by virtue of being descendants of Abraham. But in their hearts and in their words and their actions, they were far, far from God. And over and over again, throughout Scripture, we see this metaphor of the vine being used in Scripture to reference Israel, and it's clear that the most significant aspect of all of these are always referencing the failure of Israel to be a people of God. The vineyard of God has failed because, over and over again, they refused to follow God and remain faithful to his commands. So when we get back to John chapter 15, Jesus declares himself to be the true vine. Did he mean that he was just another vine alongside the vine of Israel? Was he just another option among many? By no means. In fact, Jesus said he was the true vine. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel has been unfaithful, Jesus has been completely faithful. Where Israel has turned their backs on God, Jesus is totally obe- obedient, razor focused on always doing the will of the Father. In every respect, Jesus had become for all intents and purposes the incarnation and embodiment of all that takes place in the Old Testament in respect to Israel. His representation is so bound up that in a sense he is Israel. It's all over the Gospel of John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is in effect saying, I am Israel. But instead of bringing forth wild grapes, like the nation of Israel, I bring actual spiritual fruit. No one in that room where Jesus was teaching this missed it. They all got it. And Jesus was turning their world upside down just as he does for us when we place our faith in him. And so that brings us to our next point. Yes, we're only on verse 2. Uh, don't worry, we'll move a little faster now. This is Jesus' call and warning. Jesus' call and warning. Well, having established that he is the true vine, Jesus provides both a call and a warning. We read in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. What Jesus is describing here is the work of the Father. He is the vine dresser. As most know, grapevines they take an incredible amount of work and care in order to produce of fruit, or produce fruit. A vine dresser, then, is someone who cuts away the dead branches so that the nutrients of the vine can flow to the branches that are fruitful. And as the dead branches are cut away, more and more nutrients are allowed to get into the fruitful branches so that they can be even more fruitful. And we see, then, that there are two types of branches. Both of these types of branches, they are initially connected to the vine. But some branches, those that do not bear fruit, they are cut off and they are cast aside. The other branches, they do bear fruit. And the Father prunes these branches so that they can in turn bear even more fruit. Then moving on to verse 3. Here I believe Jesus is specifically addressing his disciples in the room. These are men that, his disciples, these are men who had been with him, his earthly ministry on earth. They had followed him faithfully, though imperfectly. And Jesus says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now this isn't to say that these men were saved merely because they had a physical proximity to Jesus, and they simply heard what he was saying and therefore were saved. No. No. They still had to exercise faith in him, which is what saves them and is what justifies them before God. But rather, what Jesus is saying here is that because of Jesus' teaching, the life of the vine was already pulsating in these branches, these men, because of their faith. And it made them clean, creating in them a fruitfulness, which of course only comes from God. And Jesus then, in verse 4, Moving along here, says, abide in me and I in you. This is his call. It's his call that goes out to all men and women throughout history. <clears throat> he follows this with, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And here is the critical difference between the two types of vines. One branch abides in Christ and is then pruned by the Father and made to become even more fruitful. The other branch fails to, or will not, or does not abide in Christ and then is therefore instead cut off from the vine and it is cast aside. So then, what does it mean to abide in Christ? We've got to answer this question. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, it means nothing less than full, steadfast connection to Christ. Branches do not bear fruit unless they are connected to a vine. And just as the vine persistently imbibes life into the branch... So our connection to and our complete reliance on Christ imbibes us with spiritual life and spiritual fruit. The dictionary simply defines abide as to remain stable or fixed in a state or to continue in a place. So the proposition here is simple. You connect yourself to Christ, the vine, by placing your faith in him the kind of faith that connects one to Christ, that connects a branch to the vine, is the kind of faith that comes from abiding in him. I'll say that again. The kind of faith that connects one to Christ, that connects a branch to a vine, is by placing your faith, I'm sorry, that you connect yourself to Christ, to the vine, by placing your faith in him. And then the kind of faith that connects one to Christ, the faith that you need is the kind of faith that comes from abiding in him. And so we see in verse 5, as Christ continues to expand this metaphor, if you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. You will. And not only that, the Father will be in the business of pruning you so that you will bear much fruit. He is not satisfied to leave you as you are. He's working on you, and that's good news, and it's something that we should be thankful to God for. But Christ provi- provides us with a warning as well. Look at verse 6. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, and they are thrown into the fire and burned. Without being connected to the vine, there is no spiritual fruit. It is a dead branch. And instead of experiencing the life and the nourishment of the vine, the branch is ultimately good for nothing else than to be thrown into a fire, just as we earlier read from that passage in Ezekiel. So if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then heed this warning. And notice, at least in the context of this particular passage these are branches that were originally connected to the vine. That's what it says. This does not mean that these are people who once were saved and then somehow lost their salvation. That is not what this passage is referring to. These are people who heard the gospel. And maybe even in their minds they said, yes, that makes sense. I can see how that can be. But they never recognized or they never got to the point that they understood that they were sinners in need of God's grace. Merely intellectually assenting to what the Bible says does not always mean that a person has genuinely placed their faith in Christ. And presumably, based on this text and others, it's entirely possible that there are people in the church who have never understood the gospel. They are not a branch that the Father prunes, and instead they wither, and eventually they're cut off. So how do you know? Is it possible for a person to be so deceived that they can go their entire lives thinking that they've understood the gospel, but then they get to the end, and what? What does Scripture say? So if you're still in John, flip back over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, this is the end of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here is preaching a sermon to a crowd on a mountain. And here Jesus is teaching about two different types of people. Two different types of people. So this is chapter 7, and we'll start reading in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The obvious answer is no. So he says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. This metaphor is very similar to what we're reading in John. And this is the first group of people. And Christ is telling us that these people, these are people in the church. And he even calls them prophets. So presumably they have, they are teaching or declaring something in the church. But Jesus calls them false prophets. And so their intent is to deceive. But notice, they aren't found out by what they say, but rather by their fruit. They are found out. What is the outcome of their so-called ministry? It's bad fruit. And then there is a second group of people that Jesus talks about, continuing in the text here in Matthew. Verse 21 he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then... I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So to answer the question, can someone be deceived? The, the clear answer is yes. Christ calls them workers of lawlessness because they did not understand the gospel. They did not have true allegiance to Christ. They were in the church. They said, Lord, Lord, we did all this work in your name, but they never got it. They never understood. And so two groups of people in the church, those deceiving and those being deceived, neither understood the gospel and neither understood their need to abide in Christ. And so we need to work through this, right? And this brings us to our last point this morning. I'm calling this point... The purpose and the promise of abiding in Christ. To the purpose and promise of abiding in Christ. Back in John, let's take a look starting at verse 7. Jesus is continuing here. He says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you were here last week, or you heard last week's sermon, uh, you learned a little bit about this, right? God is not a genie, of course. He doesn't just grant us whatever we ask. But as we get lockstep in with God, his values start to become our values. And we learn how to pray, and we find in God a desire to answer our prayers and provide for his children. And what is asking? It's prayer. And so we see that for those who abide in Christ... There is a connection here to your prayers to God. That's the first purpose. The first purpose of abiding in Christ is so that our prayers would be effective and would be aligned with God's will. And the second purpose here is in verse 8. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The Father is the vine dresser. And one of his primary concerns and one of the primary ways in which he is glorified is that Christians are pruned and thus grow and mature in their faith, day by day, conforming and increasing in measure to the image and example of Christ. As Christians bear fruit, as the text says here, the Father is glorified. And why? Because, unlike the examples from the Old Testament that we read earlier, where the Father worked and planted his vineyard but received only dead branches, good for nothing but to be burned up, here we see the Father doing the work of tending to his vineyard and receiving big, fat, juicy grapes. That's the second purpose of abiding in Christ. It glorifies the Father. The God of the universe, the one who created everything, is glorified when people recognize that they are a sinner and they turn to Jesus as their only hope for salvation. They place their faith in him and they begin to grow as a branch connected to the vine. And you know, we really haven't gotten too specific yet about what this so-called fruit looks like in the life of an average Christian. If I had a basket down here full of fruit for every time I've said the word fruit, i think there'd be fruit spilling out everywhere. <laughs> but I had to reflect a little bit on this. How do we f- define what this fruit is? Because the text doesn't really come out and say it. But when you boil it all down, I think that spiritual fruit is nothing less than anything that grows or expands the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Spiritual fruit is nothing less than anything that grows or expands the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Right? What does Ephesians 2.10 say? It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre- uh, prepared beforehand, that we should work in them. It's as simple as that. Anything that expands the kingdom of God, what do I mean by that? Do I mean that you need to go out and, and build a church down the road, start a new church? No. I mean, it would be awesome if you did do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's about sharing the gospel with others, or even just coming alongside other Christians and encouraging them. Think about that. There might be a brother or a sister who is in, who's on the brink of complete despair. And you come alongside them. And you encourage them. And you pray with them. And maybe that's all they need to just go one more day and be renewed in their spirit. And they can in turn then go and encourage others. That's growing the kingdom of God. It's about helping fellow Christians turn away from their sin and keeping them accountable. It's about expressing thanksgiving to God, about praising and glorifying him through worship. If you have, if you have children, it's about shepherding and, and instructing them in the way of the Lord. If you don't have children, it's about equipping yourself so that you can shepherd and instruct and encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about not fearing man, but fearing God. And it's about using your spiritual gifts. Go read 1 Corinthians 12. Not, not now, but go read it. To serve, because it talks about serving and ministering to one another in the local church with the unique abilities and gifts that God has given you. And these are all outward manifestations of an, of an internal conversion that takes place when you put your faith in Christ. And ultimately, it's about our desire to be obedient to God's commands. Look at verse 10 in John. He says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, just like Jesus has, and abide in his love. Our desire to be obedient to God's commands is rooted in nothing less than a deep, abiding love for God himself. Was Christ exempt from obeying the commands of God? He's the teacher. If the teacher is not exempt, then neither are the disciples. But we're not perfect. And in this life, we will never be perfect. Christ has a promise for us. What does he say? Look at verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy is. May be in you, and that your joy may be full. The danger in this passage, if we're reading it recklessly, is that we can get to the end here and we can mistakenly feel a burden that says, Lord, I am a worthless Christian because I just don't do enough. I'm not good enough. I sin too much, as if we have the ability to judge what is too much, or not enough. And clearly I'm not abiding in Christ, so God's not going to be able to abide in me, and I'm not going to grow spiritually. Look, are you the one that causes the fruit to grow? Is that what the text says? No, we're just branches. But you're a branch that is connected to the true vine. And the branch doesn't strain to bear fruit it is a natural outgrowth that only increases as it is properly cared for and tended to. Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Do you desire to please God and follow him in obedience? You're not going to do it perfectly, but don't fear. You have every confidence that you are a son or a daughter of the king, and the father is personally tending to you. And he's going to cause you to bear fruit. There's also a warning in John 15. For anyone who has not believed in Jesus Christ, and for anyone who over the course of time consistently, consistently reveals a fruit that is in opposition to growing God's kingdom, then yes, heed the warning of the dead branches. If there's no repentance in your life over sin, no thirst to obey God, not even a conviction, then yes, you need to consider that you have not understood the gospel. You have not genuinely placed your faith in God. You are one of these dead branches. But for the follower of Christ, there is a wonderful promise here. I'll just, I'll close with one last example because there could not be a more vivid comparison in the Bible that illustrates these two types of branches. Two men, Judas Iscariot and Peter, both followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Both men personally heard all that Jesus had taught and preached during his earthly ministry. Both men personally witnessed his love, his righteousness, and his conviction to obey the commands of God. Both men personally witnessed his miracles, a privilege that so many people throughout the thousands of years of history since Jesus have not witnessed. They witnessed them. They saw him give sight to the blind. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him walking on water. And they even saw him raise dead people back to life. And both men denied him. Both men turned their backs on Jesus. Judas, for his love of money and greed, sold Jesus out for a pittance of money. And Peter, at the most crucial moment, as Jesus was about to be put to death, like a Howard denies ever knowing Jesus, even though he had told Jesus that he would never abandon him. Both men were branches connected to the vine. But one was a dead branch, useful only for being cut off and thrown into the fire. The other was a living branch, and the father was pruning Peter that night. Judas, overwrought by his sin and guilt and betrayal, he still refused to go back to God for forgiveness. He never went back to God for forgiveness. And so, convicted, he hung himself and killed himself. Peter, by contrast, despite his sin, went to Christ and he was forgiven. And what happened? What happened? Peter, the disciple, became Peter, the apostle. Peter was a blue-collar fisherman. He was a backcountry bumpkin. And if you think, I mean, I'm sorry if you're a fisherman. I'm not saying that <laughs> derogatorily. That's all he was. He wasn't a man of high station. He wasn't a, a strongly educated guy. But he was pruned by the Father, and his life bore spiritual fruit far beyond anyone's wildest imagination. This was a man who preached one time, and in one day, 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus, more than anyone did in the entire time Jesus was walking on earth. And one day, Peter did that. And because of his work and the work of other apostles and many others, the gospel spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire, and it has endured for over 2,000 years. That's the kind of pruning work that the Father is in the business of doing. When the Lord plants a vineyard, that's the kind of fruit that he gets. Do you think Peter ever forgot that night that he betrayed Jesus? Do you think Peter didn't lay awake at night agonizing over how he had, over how cowardly he had been? What about you? Do you lay awake at night thinking about your sin that you struggle with? Thinking about how you've failed God in one way or the other? I know I do. But we don't have to wallow in guilt. Jesus said that he has spoken these things to us that his joy would be in us and it would be joy to the full. So abide in Christ it is the way to real lasting contentment in God. It is the way to everlasting life. And if you're here this morning and you don't know if you're saved, you don't know if you have repented and placed your faith in God, find a pastor this morning We'd love to share the good news of Jesus with you. We can answer your questions and we can pray with you. Myself or Pastor Kyle, we're available. So let's pray. Gracious and good Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Father, how encouraging it is to know that you are personally tending to us, pruning us. And sanctifying us, not only for our own good, which is praiseworthy enough, but for your own glory. So, Lord, help us to live our lives in obedience to your commands, for your glory and for the reputation of Jesus Christ. Lord, in our weakness we sin, and sometimes we give in to despair. But use it, Lord, for our good and help us to keep our eyes focused. On Jesus Christ so that we might be full of his joy. Prune us so that you would cause us to bear more and more fruit, growing your kingdom in ways that we could never imagine. And it's in Jesus's glorious name we pray.